You have your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus in chapter 3. Exodus in chapter 3. We'll read the first 12 verses. Um, next week we'll pause in our series of Exodus and we'll look at the words of Jesus himself as he speaks about his own coming into the world. So, but today we'll stay in Exodus and we'll pray before we read God's word. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the story of the Exodus and how it points to your ultimate deliverance in the sending of the Saviour, the Deliverer, the Redeemer, our Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of our Saviour, our Redeemer, our Deliverer, in his precious name. Amen. So Exodus in chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh, and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. It's quite an amazing place to visit, actually, with a burning bush. It's apparently supposed to have been. Uther and I had the privilege of doing that many years ago. They built a monastery there, St. Catherine's Monastery. Um, but it is quite a spectacular thought, and it's a well-known thought. It's one of the well-known stories of the book of Exodus. But I wonder whether you've ever thought about, we pray for revival a lot. We, we preach about revival. We look at stories of revival. What would, what would it look like if God began to do something really big in our day. What would it look like? What would you see? And you can imagine what revival might look like 
Well, surely the churches would be full. People would be gathering for prayer. There would be unity under the gospel. There would be great worship. There would be people being converted. Maybe there would be a new missionary movement. Maybe a new movement of students being raised up and sent out to the uttermost, uttermost parts of the earth. Or maybe seeing people in their retirement age going far away places. Learning the language after retirement to share the gospel in a different land. What would a great big thing look like? Maybe would it be that North Africa, North Africa, which was at one time part of the cradle of Christianity, would we see North Africa turn back to Christ? Or maybe a breakthrough closer to home, a breakthrough on this continent, a breakthrough in Europe, where it seems that the gospel was won, only to be lost. Maybe it'd be the end of abortion. Maybe the promotion of family and marriage. Or governments around the world stop oppressing their own people and stop persecuting Christians. What would something really big look like? How would it start? How would it begin? I do not know what it would look like in the beginning, but the result, I'm sure, would be prayer, worship, truth, faith, hope and love. But what would it look like in the beginning stages when God was just beginning to roll out a great plan of revival in our day? The only thing that we can be sure of is that we cannot be sure of what it would look like. <laughs> the only thing that I'm sure of. A bit like on Thursday night, we were looking at the man of lawlessness. And you know, the only thing I'm sure of is that I won't know what he looks like. That's why we have to be devoted to his word. That's why we have to keep coming back to his word. But when God does something big, he does so in surprising ways. And these verses in Exodus 3 represent the first steps in God's great plan for deliverance for his enslaved people in Egypt. And while the story is familiar to us, it is very familiar to us. There's a wonderful little book just on the burning bush by R.C. Sproul. It's only a tiny little book. You could read it in the time it would take you know, to watch one show. So it's really worth buying, The Burning Bush by R.C. Sproul. But um, it's well known to us but it wouldn't have been expected for the Israelites. And some of you know the story well, and you're thinking, good, now James eventually is getting into the good stuff in Exodus. This is going to be really good. And we have a lot of good stuff until we get to the end, and then there's all those boring laws and curtains and tabernacles. But we have it good and exciting for quite a long time. Yes, we have the plagues and... That's really exciting. And then we have the burning bush. That's great. And we have all of these great stories. You know the story, but you don't know the story. Because God works in surprising ways. And as familiar as this story is to us, it was very surprising as it was unfolded to them. And the same is true in our own lives. God is doing things. He is doing things in your life. 
He is doing things in churches. He is doing things in this land. He is doing things in the world. Now, how God is doing it and what it will look like and whether you will be able to detect it from the very first signs, that remains to be seen. But if we do not know at least a little bit of what we should look for, we will miss it. So the first thing is God's timing is surprising, both when and where. It is surprising that God would act after seeming to be absent for such a long time. And back at the beginning of chapter 3, Moses is keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro in this desolate land far away from Egypt called Midian. That's where Moses is. Now you may recall from last time that Moses' father-in-law has more nicknames than anyone I know anyway. He's called Jetha and Raul. Raul. But he's more often called Jethro. Now, Raul may have been a family name, but he's known more commonly as Jethro. And before you say, I found out something interesting last week, I like these things, before you say no one has the name Raul anymore, you know that the second J-R-R in J-R-R Tolkien is Raul? So that's another thing for your Christmas trivia Bible quiz. The second name of J-R-R Tolkien is Raul. But to know just how humble Moses has become, He's working for his father-in-law far away from Egypt, where he was once a prince. I think even the film is called The Prince of Egypt, isn't it? The Prince of Egypt, Moses, the Prince of Egypt. Now he's tending to the flocks. Well, you remember back in Genesis when Jacob and the Israelites first settled in Egypt, right at the end of Genesis. And they said that they were shepherds. Because... And that was shocking because to be a shepherd was an abomination to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians thought that the shepherd's work was dirty and beneath them. Moses says that shepherding is not beneath him. And while tending the flocks for his father-in-law, he sees this strange sight. A bush that is burning, but is never consumed. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And from the bush, the angel of the Lord speaks to him. In this instance, the angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. It is a theophany. That's an invisible manifestation of the invisible God. Sixty-seven times in the Old Testament, we have this figure, the angel of the Lord. You could translate it, the angel that is Yahweh, or angel Yahweh. And we see from the following verses that the angel of the Lord is not Gabriel, it's not Michael, or some angel giving a a message from the Lord, but is an angelic representation of the Lord himself. Um, Verse 4, when the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which means Yahweh, saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. So God, Lord, the angel of the Lord, are used interchangeably in, even in this passage. And in verse 2 it says the angel of the Lord, capital L, capital O, in capitals. The same in verse 6. It says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then verse 7, and then again back to Yahweh, 
Then Yahweh said, and in verse 11, but Moses said to God. So they're all used interchangeably. And God, you know, when, when it's, just to be clear, when we translate it G-O-D, you know, capital G, is normally the Hebrew word Elohim. God is normally Elohim. And when you see Lord in capitals, as in verse 2, the angel of the Lord, or in verse 4, when the Lord, and it's written out in small capital letters, it is translating the Hebrew word that cannot be translated, which is Yahweh, four consonants in Hebrew. And actually, we shouldn't, you know, it's not spelt Yahweh, it's spelt Y-H-W-H in English. It's the angel of the Lord, it is the Lord. He calls to Moses, and he repeats his name in verse 4. Moses, Moses. When God in the Bible wants to get someone's attention, when he wants to speak with a certain zeal and passion, he does this. Samuel, Samuel, 1 Samuel 3. My God, my God, Jesus said on the cross. In Luke 10, he said, Martha, Martha. Peter, he said, Simon, Simon. On the, on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And here he says, Moses, Moses. And it's almost an exact parallel here to Genesis 46. If you want to, or otherwise I'll read it, flick back to Genesis 46. And Israel was journeying to Beersheba. And he said in verse 2, And God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again. The similarity is striking. He said, Jacob, Jacob, and Jacob said, Here I am. And God said, Do not be afraid. You will go down to Egypt, and I will bring you up again. And centuries later, God says, Moses, Moses, here I am, and I want you to go to Egypt. And just like I promised Jacob, I will bring you out. You have to go. You notice that God said to Jacob, do not be afraid, and it says that Moses was immediately afraid. Now, it's speculation, but it might be interesting to consider, might there be a difference? That Jacob, at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, has encountered God before, and he knows what kind of fear to have and not to have of God. And God says, do not be afraid. But Moses, with his first encounter with Yahweh, is afraid and hides his face. The timing is surprising. God, you said this to my ancestor Jacob centuries ago, and now you're doing something? Only now? Why did it take so long? Why did it take so long, Moses saying? Well, maybe you could say that the cries of God's people had accumulated to such a degree that God was now ready to act. So why had it taken so long? Maybe the cries of God's people had accumulated that God is now ready to act. Or maybe because the sins of the Amorites had been filled up. 
so that now God would be just to wipe them out and send Israel to the promised land. If you remember Genesis 15, you may not have noticed this before, but one of the most difficult questions, hard to answer, if we're honest, a Christian has to answer is when someone says, how can you defend a God who wipes out the Canaanites, demands that the Israelites kill them and slaughter them, and then gives their land to them? What kind of God does that? Well, at least a part of the answer to that difficult question is to realise that in doing so, it was not an act of arbitrary cruelty. It was an act of justice. The people in the land had sinned grievously and they deserved to be wiped out. Almost any one of us, however militaristic we may or may not be, would look at World War II and say that defeating the Nazis, it was just. It was right. It was a just cause. Now look what God says to Abraham in Genesis 15 and verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is Genesis 15. The prophecy about the slavery in Egypt. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Is that not fascinating? It should, it should strengthen our hope that the promise was given and the promise was fulfilled for sure. But it's fascinating. The Lord says, I'm not ready to give you the promised land. I'm not ready to give you the promised land because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Lord was waiting. And part of what he was waiting for for all this time, that the sins of the people would accumulate, that God would be just to wipe them out. It's sobering to think that God made you this land, this continent, or any country in the same way. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. But do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Do not be deceived that God is not mocked. Now, now their iniquity has been fulfilled and their destruction will be utterly deserved. God's timing is not our timing, it's rarely our timing. Which is why one of the most frequent cries of the Psalms is, how long? How long? Do you cry that in your heart? I do. How long? Why, Lord? What possible reason could you have for making this protracted suffering even longer? And faith, in part, is the ability to trust that if you knew everything God knew, and if you understood everything God understood, and if you could see everything God sees, you would say, that is right. It takes faith to believe, because our vision is limited, and our pain is long. But if we knew what God knew, if we could see what God sees, we would say, of course, I see why this had to happen to them, to that nation, to those people, I understand. God knew what he was doing. 
But here in the Midianite desert, why would this day be any different from the thousand that had gone before? But this was the day that the Lord had appointed to be the beginning of the exodus of his people. I have a great commentary on Exodus by Victor Hamilton, and he says, God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. Isn't that beautiful? God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. And as some of us, some of you, endure what seems a long period of God's delay, know that it is not necessarily his denial. They had languished in Egypt for 400 years, but on this day, in this place, in the Midian desert, God publicly calls a man to initiate their deliverance. It's, it's awesome, it really is, not in the way the Americans use it, but it really is. And it's, and it's worship inducing that on this day, God publicly initiated a man to go initiate the deliverance. The timing was surprising, not just when, but where. Where is Moses? He's not in the promised land. He's not even in Egypt. He's not in the heart of power, but he's on, in Midian, on the far side of a mountain, talking to a shrub in a field. He's not in a great meditative trance. He's not in the midst of prayer or sacrifice. He's not in Rome. He's in, not in a temple. He's doing his menial labour. Probably somewhere really boring. Tending to the flocks in remote pasture lands. And God meets him there. And this has caused me to stop and to give thanks. Because God can meet you anywhere. And God says, take off your shoes. It doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't matter that we're in Midian. It doesn't matter that we're in a remote pasture land. I am here, and that makes it holy. So wherever God meets us, because he is there, he makes it holy. Now in Western cultures, we don't often take our shoes off. We had 16 years in Vienna where everyone takes their shoes off. Wherever you go into any house, it is the common practice to take your shoes off. But in Western cultures, we don't so much do that. Maybe when some people get new carpets, you'll say, take your shoes off. Um, in our house in Deerham, we had a splendid idea with a dog to have a, a nice cream carpet. I think it lasted precisely like 23 hours or something before it became irrevocably damaged. But when some people get new carpets, they want you to take your shoes off. So if you go to other parts of the world, even in Europe, it's an important part of their hospitality that when you come, you take off your shoes. But part of what God is saying is, not only are you on holy ground in the presence of holy God, but I think God is welcoming him. It's part of God welcoming him. And that struck me this week, that take your shoes off. Yes, it's holy ground, God's there. But it's also God's welcome. God's welcome. You're a guest, I'm the host. Remove your shoes. So first of all, God's timing is surprising. But secondly, his compassion is surprising. Now, it's not surprising that God would be compassionate. But what we may not realise is that 
God cares for us deeply, even when he sees he is not paying attention. Some wives have husbands who often seem as if they're not paying attention. But unlike your husband, God is paying attention. He can do more than one thing at a time. I, I, I convince myself I'm a multitasker, but I'm repeatedly told I can only do one thing at a time. But he can do one thing at a time. He's just not locked into looking at the World Cup. He's listening, even when he seems to be gone. I'm preaching this, you know, this evening, by the way, at 6.30. So you can think of that. But he's not just locked into the, into the World Cup. He's listening, even when he seems to be gone. And Exodus 3, verse 6 is the realisation of what we saw last week in Exodus 2, 24. That God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And at the end of Exodus 2, we saw that God remembered and God called to mind his covenant and his promises. But in Exodus 2, all we have is what God knows about God. And now we see the public realisation of it. For God says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now that may, not be, that may have been the first time that Moses heard it, but it wasn't the first time that God remembered it. Similarly with verse 7, the end of Exodus 2, when it says God heard, God saw and God knew. And verse 7 says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in, e who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I, I know their sufferings. Do not think when you begin to see God act that what you see is the beginning of God's plan. We saw last week he had seen and heard and knew, but all we knew was that God knew. And now God will let Moses know, I have heard, I've seen it, I know it and I will come. I will send you and I will come. I will give you the land. That was the promise to the patriarchs, the land flowing with milk and honey. Now this famous description appears 20 times in the Bible. You know it well, don't you? The land flowing with milk and honey. I, I read a great interesting debate on what it really means. And milk is translated as fat and honey is sap. So this probably means the nectar from fruit, not what the bees would make. But it sounds better to say a land flowing with milk and honey rather than a land of fat saps, doesn't it? It sounds a bit better to say it. So that's why I think we see the land flowing with milk and honey. But milk and honey is an ancient way of saying that this is a good land. And I will give it to you because I promised. And God's passion is God's compassion is present, even when his plan seems to be absent. He had seen their affliction. He had seen the taskmasters. He knew what they were doing. He heard their cries. He saw their compassion, their oppression, and he had not left them. God has not forgotten about you. He is coming. He never left. We, who are imperfect parents, love imperfectly, make imperfect decisions. But yet most of the time we know a few things. How much more does God know? How much more does our God, who can be with us at all times through the Spirit of Christ, 
and say to us in all places, I have not left you. I will never forsake you. And even when my compassion seems absent, it is ever present with you. And that is rock solid, my friend. God's promises are rock solid. Gandalf said in The Lord of the Rings, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And that is so much more true in the Lord Jesus. When did he come after all of those years? When did he come? You could have said, wait a minute, God, wait a minute. You said, <laughs> you said, Genesis 3.15, that you would send someone to crush the serpent. And we've kept waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. But in the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, God said, this will be good. Send my son, go. And Jesus came. How do we know that God has not forgotten his promises? Because Jesus came. Because Jesus came. You see verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus uses this in the New Testament, where the Pharisees and Sadducees are arguing about the resurrection. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection and the Sadducees don't. And the Jews were having this intermural discussion about whether or not there was a resurrection, and whether you could prove the resurrection from the Pentateuch. And Jesus gives his famous answer. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And Abraham, Isaac and Jacob may have died, but they're alive. They're in paradise. They're in Abraham's bosom. They're awaiting their resurrected bodies. And Jesus looked to this verse to be one of hope, compassion, support and power. But I realised that there was something else that Jesus was getting at. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Not just to point out that these three men were living in heaven, but he was saying something about their wives, because each of their wives were barren, and God had to intervene in miraculous ways for any of them to have children. So could it be that Jesus was not making only a statement that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had been alive, but Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, who seemed to be as good as dead, but God opened their womb and gave life where there was no life. Maybe that's part of what Jesus was saying. You doubt the resurrection? Jews, you doubt the resurrection? You are here. <laughs> you, you are here. And you descend from these three women. None of whom were supposed to have children, but God gave life. My friend, God brings dead things to life. And God's compassion is surprising. And it is present even when we do not see it. And thirdly, God's way is surprising. He uses people. Do you ever think, God, why do you do it this way? You have angels. You have, you, you have ministering servants. You tell them and they go. Or maybe, God, you can even use the weather. Or maybe a legion of super-intelligent robots. Why does God have such a yearning to use people? Well, here is God. He has this great, grand, glorious plan. And he chooses Moses to help carry it out. 
And you think about Moses' history. He'd killed a man. He had fled. And you would think Moses would be ready. He, was, he had 80 years. He'd probably enter in the retirement period of his life. He should have had some things figured out. He had a history of pursuing justice. We saw that last week. He learned from humility and hard work. He was refined by family and farm life. He had a host of fears and failures. And when God comes to him, he says, who am I? And I don't think it's just polite ancient culture. There's some of it, maybe. But this is the first time out of five where Moses says, you've got the wrong man. It's more than politeness. Who am I? This is, this is me. It's me. It's me. It, you know who I am? It's me. And maybe Moses had in, had in mind what happened 40 years ago when Moses intervened to save his countrymen from the Egyptian oppressor. He wasn't just trying to break up a fight. We know from the New Testament that he thought that the people would gather around him and it would be the beginning of the Exodus. He thought by intervening then that he was saying, I will be your deliverer, I'll strike this Egyptian down, and then, are you ready? Come. And no one followed. They said, no, his own people rejected him. He tried to be a deliverer and was given a, a no. And when the Egyptians came and said, what happened? They said, yes, it was him, it's Moses. It had been 40 years, and Moses is still wondering, can I do this? It's surprising and striking how long failures stick with us, especially spiritual failures. God, I tried that one time. It was cringing. It, it was awful. Use somebody else. You know my wretched history. Use somebody else. Maybe Moses thought, well, actually, I'm, I've moved on. I'm married. I have a family. I have a great father-in-law. He has loads of different names. I'm tending to his flock. I left Egypt a lifetime ago. You want me to go back there? It's surprising that God uses people. So be careful what you pray for. Because you may be God's answer to your own prayer. Remember that great incident in the life of Ruth and Boaz? Ruth needed help and depended on everyone for help. And who can help her? Boaz. And Boaz in Ruth 2, and Ruth in, as it's in Boaz in Ruth 2 prays a beautiful prayer. He said to Ruth, may, pray, may you find refuge under the Lord's wings. And in Ruth 3, when Ruth came to see Boaz in the middle of the night, he woke up and said, what should I do for you? And she said, spread your wings over me. He prayed it in Luke 2, and the, he, he was the answer to her prayer. Because the same Hebrew word for wings is translated as corner of a garment. Spread the corner of your garment, your wings over me. In other words, Boaz, you prayed to God that he would help me find refuge under his wings. And Boaz, I'm telling you, you can be the answer to your own prayer. You want me to find refuge? Well, how about you? Be careful what you pray for because God may use you to answer your own prayer. God does not have to use people, but he almost always does. Why? Because it's privilege for us, but it's glory for him. It's our privilege, my friend, to be a part of the plan of God, and it brings glory to his name. 
God gets the glory because we are earthen vessels and we are cracked pots. We are jars of clay and God uses us because he gets glory to use people like us. God's power is surprising. You say, well, how can he use us? Well, he can use us because he does not depend on us. In verse 12, God gives a remarkable sign. Verse 1 says that Moses came to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, which is another name for Sinai. What does the Lord promise Moses in verse 12? Moses says, I want a sign now that you are with me, that I can trust you. And God says, I will give you a sign and I will give it to you after I have already done all of this. But you're going to have to trust me at the outset. I know you want the sign, but I'll give it to you at the back end so you can remember God promised this. And God promises that you'll come back with the people to the foot of this mountain because Moses is here at the foot of Sinai. And when you come back to the bush at Mount Sinai, it'll be a resting place for the people of God, but for Moses it will be a place of fulfilment. And when he climbs that mountain, when he climbed that mountain, he would remember, years ago, God, I saw you, I heard you, and here we are. You've been faithful to your promise. God uses us, but it does not depend upon us. The Lord doesn't answer the question about Moses. Moses wants to say, he wants to talk about Moses. He said, who am I? But God doesn't want to talk about Moses because God wants to talk about God. And Moses said, who am I? And it's almost as if God says, it's not important. I'm not answering your questions because I'm telling you that I will be with you. Who am I? I will be with you. And it doesn't matter who Moses is or what might be his strength as long as God is with him. John Calvin said, God is never regarded by us with due honour unless when contented with his assistance alone, we seek for no ground of confidence apart from him. And although our own weakness may alarm us, we think it enough that he is on our side. Do you believe that it is enough that God is on our side? It is enough that God is on our side. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us if God is for us? And you can say, well, a lot of people can be against me. My friends can be against me. My parents are against me. My boss is against me. My son might be against me. The government is against me. The nations are against me. But God knows that. And the point of the question is, no one can succeed apart from my will. No one can succeed because I am on your side. Do you feel weak? I do. If you're honest, you feel weak. I feel weak about dozens of things. I wake panicked some days about things I have to do. And there is hard suffering conflict. And I don't go into those thinking, here am I, I'm ready, because I feel weak. But if you had to go into a battle, would you feel, have some comfort knowing that you had a military escort? If you went into a difficult situation, 
Wouldn't you feel better if an expert was with you? Wouldn't you feel better in a difficult situation with your best friend by your side? We have a lot better than that. You have made a lot of reasons to doubt yourself, but there's no reason to ever doubt God. Who am I? I am with you. And God promises Moses that I will be with you. Moses is freaking out at this point. He really is. He's really freaking out. He says, who am I? And the answer is, I will be with you. And Jesus says something similar in the Great Commission. I will be with you to the very end of the age. To God, he transformed a desolate pasture land into holy ground. And if God can do that, what can he do with an isolated man like Moses? We, we looked at this in Genesis, but the word in Hebrew for ground, earth and land is Adama. Remember that? Adama. And what he's saying is, I will take you out of the Adama and I will make you Adam, which is the word for man. What can God do with the Adama to make it holy? That is the burning bush. Might he not also do with the Adam, which is Moses? And here's God saying, I came, I came to Midian, and the place, because I'm here, is holy. What can he do with you when he says, right now, how, no matter how far gone you are or who you are, you can be holy, because I am with you. He did it with the lad. He did it with that burning bush. And he can do it with you. No matter who you are, no matter what, how useless you feel, how weak you are, you can be holy because God is with you. Who am I is not nearly as important as who is he. Who is he? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this account in Moses' life. And I just come before you with worship and praise that you used this man Moses as your instrument for such greater deliverance. And Heavenly Father, I thank you that you can use any one of us if we would only humble ourselves and put our trust wholly and only in you. In Jesus' name, amen.